Welcome back to the WGN Radio Theater. We'll be here till 3 o'clock in the morning playing all your favorite classic radio shows. I'm Carl Amari. My co-host is Lisa Wolf. In this hour, we'll have the conclusion to Mr. and Mrs. Blandings, starring Cary Grant and his real-life wife, Betsy Drake, from 1951. We'll also tune into The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, starring Tom Conway and Nigel Bruce. But before we do that, I do want to remind everyone listening about Veronica M. clothing I'm wearing. Well, not right now because I'm on the radio, but I wear the mask she sent me. It's an amazing mask. I get to wash it and I can reuse it. Because you're pretty dirty, so we got to keep you clean over there. <laughs> That's right, with this COVID-19 <laughs> nonsense. nonsense. So this all started with Veronica Ferrer. She is the founder of this LA-based brand, Veronica M. And I was doing some research into the very best safest and most fashionable mass that I could well, find. Yeah, I mean, you, I wanna, mean, you know, it's a great a combination. Girl, so. <laughs> right. And this is what I came up with. Um, what makes this company so special is Veronica herself. She started with very humble beginnings. She started cutting and sewing in her garage and she ended up with this really wonderful company called Veronica M. It's all LA based. So everything she makes there um, is manufactured in Los Angeles and with everything going on, she shifted her focus from the great clothing to masks. And she is now producing 7,000 masks per week. And she is personally trimming and packaging and shipping out these masks every single day. They are very fashionable. Mine is just just all black. But well, there's like camouflage I mean, that was pretty ones. cool for you. There's all kinds of stuff, um, all kinds of different are, kinds of masks. And they are made with two layers of stretch cotton fabric with a fuse lining in the center for extra protection. They are machine washable. They are five masks for $35, Veronica. That's all, a great price. It's a great deal. She, How do people get them? They go to her, they can go to her website, which is veronicam.shop. That's V-E-R-O-N-I-C-A-M.shop. You can follow her on Instagram. Instagram at Veronica M Clothing, and you can also check out her hot clothing trends, her jumpsuits, her cute tops for Zoom and Skype meetings. Check it out, and I have some photos posted on our social media of the masks. All right, well, get your masks from Veronica M dot shop. All right, when we come back, it's the conclusion to Mister and Mrs. Blandings plus the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Stick around. Hour four of the WGN Radio Theater. We're here till three o'clock in the morning playing all your favorite classic radio shows. We start at 10 p.m. on Saturday nights. Mark your calendar. Tell a friend. All right. In our last hour, we began listening to Mr. and Mrs. Blandings starring Cary Grant and his real life wife, Betsy Drake. Here's the conclusion. <laughs> he told all about how he was going to take all the kids on a big hike. Jim, I don't see. Oh, the phone. I'll get it. I don't see how you can get out of it, dear. It's printed Hello? in the paper. I'll simply call the mayor and tell him I'm out of town on a business trip. But it's your idea. You can't walk out. I'll take a plane. <laughs> uh, Mr. Blandings, hmm? it's a Mrs. Libby on the phone. She uh, wants to know if her son Stanley can go on the hike. There isn't going to be any hike. Tell her, uh, tell her I broke my toe. <laughs> you broke her toe? On his way to the plane while painting on spots for his measles. Oh, that's not funny. Oh, Daddy. Daddy, it's so wonderful about you taking us on the hike. Oh, now, Susan, the hike isn't so much. Oh, but it is. All the kids are talking about it. 
They all wish they had a wonderful daddy like you. Hmm. They do? Well. <laughs> Golly, there isn't another daddy in town who even thinks of such good things. Well, I... <clears throat> I, uh, I don't know what to say. Uh, what do you think, Muriel? I think a plane load of measles just came in for a landing. Well, after all, I did agree to go. Of course, dear, and don't worry. I'll be at home preparing a hot mustard bath for your feet. Oh, but you can't be home, Mother. I can't? Oh, no, I told Janie's mother you were coming to look after the girls. Oh. Care to borrow a slightly used measle? <laughs> For it's high, high heat on the field artillery. Call up your numbers and it's strong. Two, three, four. Where we go, you will always know that the caissons go rolling along. Hey! <laughs> Everybody halt. We'll rest here. Say, that certainly is a fine marching song. It's corny. Uh, it's what? <laughs> Cornball, strictly for the icks. Mm. And what would a non-ick like yourself suggest? Something hot like Wham, bam, alakazam, orange-colored sky Oh, for heaven's sake Isn't Johnny wonderful? Oh, he's real gone Not far enough <laughs> I'm hungry Here's a sandwich, Janie Well, now, if you will gather around me We will have a class in knot tying Now, would you hand me that rope, Muriel? Here you are. Thank you. Now, now, pay attention, boys and girls. I'm going to show you the clove hitch. Mm. A very useful knot, isn't it, Muriel? Oh, yes, I've used it I don't know how many times. <laughs> when hitching cloves. Uh, <laughs> all right. On with the lesson. Now, now, first you take the rope. Bend one end around an object, for instance, my wrist in this fashion. Then you pass the first end through the loop like this and take the other end under and under. Over the first end, like this, and then... Uh... Yes, dear? Well, then if someone will kindly untangle me, we'll be on our way. Daddy, what kind of a tree is that one? Hold it, everyone. Ah, that tree, Susan? Oh, yes, Daddy. Why, that, Susan, happens to be a, uh, a, uh, spruce. A spruce? Hmm. Well, it doesn't look like the one in our yard. Oh, well, this is a very unusual species of spruce. <laughs> yes, it has maple leaves on it. <laughs> oh, that's the tree you meant. Quiet, quiet. Quiet, everyone. Listen to that bird. Now, who can identify that bird call? I think it's a robin. I think it's a thrush. I think I'm hungry. <laughs> Here's a banana, Janie. Hmm. Fine students of nature. That was obviously the call of the Baltimore Oriole. <laughs> hey, Susan! Look at me! I'm turned! Ah! Sounds ah! <laughs> more like Tarzan's mother. Jim, get him down from there. Stanley, come down from there. Ah! Uh, oh, oh. Stan, I said come down. Now, if you do, I'll show you how to make a fire by rubbing two sticks together. 
I'll make a fire by rubbing two sticks together. Hold on, this I gotta see. A real fire, Mr. Blandings? A really real fire? The really realest fire you ever saw. Oh boy, then we can cook something on it. I'm hungry. <laughs> Here's a candy bar, Janie. Okay, here I am. Let's see you do your stuff. Very well. <clears throat> now, I uh, simply take two sticks like this, and then I rub them together like this. Uh, well, naturally, it doesn't work the first time. Match. So I rub them even harder the second time, like this. Uh-huh. Then I rub them again, like this. Uh, well, now that the sticks are warm, we light them with a match. <laughs> Uh, come on, everybody, on with the march. Jim, I think we really should be getting back. It's almost nighttime, you know. Hmm? Well, why, so it is. I hope we can find our way. Me too. I'm hungry. <laughs> Here's an orange, Janie. Well, now, don't you worry your little heads about that. When you're with old Daniel Blandings, there's absolutely no problem. You see, I used an old scouting trick. What's that, Jim? Well, I, I don't know if you noticed it or not, Muriel, but I've been dropping bits of paper along the way. All we do to get back is follow them. Clever, huh? Yes, but I haven't noticed any bits of paper. He probably means these. Stanley! <laughs> But great Scott Stanley, do you realize what this means? This means that we're... That we're... Is lost the word you're groping for? Yeah. Come on. Hey, stop, stop, stop! I can't go on! Stanley, what's the matter? I got something in my shoe! What is it? My foot! <laughs> hey, look behind you, you may find my hand. Now, come on. Jim, are you sure we shouldn't just stop and wait for help or something? Of course not. We're making headway. Look, I'd swear there's something familiar about that tree. Yes, it's got leaves on it. <laughs> oh, it's the spruce tree with the maple leaves. Jim, it is. Good heavens, we must be going around in a circle. Now, don't get panicky. I'm scared. Me too. But there's nothing to be frightened of. Now, look at me. I'm not worried. It isn't as though there were wild beasts lurking in the trees and bushes out there. <gasps> what was that? <laughs> Stanley, I stepped on his toe. Oh. Johnny, if you don't... don't... Listen. Run for the trees. That is an animal. No, <gasps> oh, Jim, listen. Voices. Huh? Oh, yes. Thank heavens, I think they're Americans. <laughs> hey, fellas, over here. <laughs> it's Constable Arquette with the search party. Well, howdy, folks. Hello, there. Constable, am I glad to see you. Why, you're here with the search party almost before we got lost. Mr. Blanding, the Red Cross don't wait till the dams bust before they get ready. <laughs> 
Yeah, the night you said you was leading this hike, I started wrinkling up my nose like a bloodhound. But how in the world were you able to find this way out here? Just followed the trail. What trail? Sandwich papers, banana peels, candy wrappers, orange peels. Janie, your stomach saved us. Janie, do you hear? I'm hungry. <laughs> Here again are Cary Grant and Betsy Drake. Jim, now that we're home and the children are up in bed asleep, I want you to promise me that you'll never take them on another hike. Don't worry. I feel as if I've walked a million miles. I'm dead. The next time I take the kids on a trip, it's going to be aboard a TWA Constellation. That's the only way to travel. Sounds good to me. And you know, children under 12 travel at half fare on TWA. <laughs> and babies under 2 go for nothing. And besides that, the pilot always knows where they're going. You talked me into it. Where will we go? I know a good place. Where? To bed. My feet are killing me. <laughs> good night, dear. Good night, everybody. <laughs> Tune in next week, same time, same station, for Mr. and Mrs. Blanding, starring Cary Grant and Betsy Drake. Brought to you by Transworld Airlines. Across the U.S. and overseas, you can depend on TWA. Betsy Drake appears to the courtesy of RKO Pictures and David O. Selznick. Watch for the next Selznick release, Gypsy Blood, starring Jennifer Jones and produced in Technicolor. Constable Arquette was played by Cliff Arquette. Alvia Allman was Maud. Also in our cast were Patty King, Earl Ross, Ken Christie, Ralph Moody, Sammy Ogg, Stuffy Singer, and Norma Jean Nielsen. Tonight's show is written by Charles Stewart and Mort Lockman, directed by Warren Lewis, and transcribed in Hollywood. Don Stanley speaking. Here's a special announcement. Next Saturday afternoon, listen to Alias Jane Doe on another network when the entire broadcast will feature the interesting story of a TWA hostess. And that's Mr. and Mrs. Blanding's good comedy from April 29, 1951, called Child Psychology, starring Cary Grant and Betsy Drake. And also in that cast, we heard Cliff Arquette, Elvia Allman, Patty King, Earl Ross, Ken Christie, and Ralph Moody. It's heard on NBC, sponsored by TWA. I'm going to start calling you Carl Moody. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, you. <laughs> I can be kind of moody you once can. in a while. All right, Sherlock Holmes, Tom Conway stars, along with Nigel Bruce. I mean, Sherlock Holmes was on the radio starting in 1930 all the way until the 1960s. So, I mean, 30-plus years on the radio. All kinds of different actors played. I think the only people that didn't play Sherlock Holmes 
and Dr. Watson was you and me. I know, right? What happened? Yeah, Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce, of course, the movie stars also played the roles on radio. On this particular episode, it's Tom Conway as uh, Holmes with Nigel Bruce as Watson. From March 10th, 1947, this is called The Singular Affair of the Egyptian Curse. Here's the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Cremel Hair Tonic and Cremel Shampoo present the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes, starring Nigel Bruce as Dr. Watson and Tom Conway as Sherlock Holmes. Tonight, owing to Mr. Conway's illness, the part of Sherlock Holmes will be played by Mr. Ben Wright. And now for our weekly visit with Sherlock Holmes' famous colleague, your friend and mine, Dr. Watson. Good evening, Dr. Watson. Good evening, Mr. Bell. I'm glad to see you. Make yourself at home. Thank you, Dr. Watson. You know, I've been waiting eagerly all week to hear about the singular affair of the ancient Egyptian curse. And the most singular affair it was, to be sure. It had its beginnings in the august halls of the British Museum. I've been looking over my old records to refresh my memory, and even after all these years, it sends what in Scotland they call a cow grew down my spine. <laughs> I can hardly wait, Dr. Watson. Recently, in a poll conducted throughout the country, women picked the ten best-groomed men in America. These men were all men at the top, statesmen, governors, motion picture stars, producers, and millionaires. And men, I'm sure you'll be interested in hearing how a recent survey showed that Kreml hair tonic is preferred among America's top-flight executives and most successful men. But then, why shouldn't it be? Kreml contains a special combination of hair-grooming ingredients which is found in no other hair tonic. This is why Kreml gives a man's hair such a natural, well-groomed look. Such a handsome, clean-cut appearance. Kreml also keeps the hair neatly in place longer, with a healthy-looking luster. Yet it never leaves your hair looking or feeling greasy. After you apply Kreml, you can rub your hand over your hair, and your hair always feels so delightfully clean. Notice, too, how no greasy film comes off on your hand, or on your hatband. Just use a little Kreml on your hair in the morning... And at night, your hair looks as neatly groomed as when you first combed it in the morning. K-R-E-M-L. Kreml hair tonic. Now, Dr. Watson, what about the singular affair which began in the sacrosanct confines of the British Museum? Well, I must admit that I was not a frequent visitor to those gloomy halls, but on this particular morning, Holmes had been insistent. All the scientists in London, especially the archaeologists, were agog over the arrival of Lord Cranwood's sensational Egyptian discoveries. For several days, Holmes had been deeply immersed in research among the Cranwood antiquities, so that now I found myself in the Egyptian gallery of the British Museum. I say, Watson, look here. This notation definitely proves the use of stringed instruments as well as flutes as early as 3000 B.C. Oh, very interesting, Holmes. Interesting indeed. If you please, sir. Smoking is absolutely forbidden. Huh? All right, all right, all right. Uh, hello, Holmes. Well, Watson, I don't think you know Professor Halliday of the British Museum. Professor, this is my friend, Dr. Watson. Dr. Watson? Not the eminent Dr. Eustace Watson, the well-known archaeologist of Edinburgh? I'm honored. No, sir. Dr. John H. Watson of Baker Street. Oh, sorry. <laughs> this is Dr. Watson's first visit to all your magnificent new acquisitions, Professor Halliday. It's a veritable treasure house, gentlemen. 
the late Lord Cranwood's excavations at the site of ancient Abydos have given the museum a priceless mine of information. And yet the price in human lives has not been inconsiderable. First Lord Cranwood himself, only a few days after the shrine of Harshafit was opened. A man of almost 80, Mr. Holmes. The strain and excitement of the discovery were too much for him. No doubt. And then a month later, Dr. Duma, disappearing mysteriously from camp, only to be found hopelessly insane and babbling madly before he died. And young Wilson vanished into thin air and assumed to have been lost overboard from the ship that was bringing the expedition back to England. Oh, it was a calm, moonlit night. Don't tell me that you, of all people, believe this newspaper talk of Hashafit's curse, Mr. Holmes. I believe nothing that is not susceptible of proof, Professor. Evidently, the new Lord Cranwood is quite undisturbed by any threats of a curse upon his family. I've seen him working here every day this week. Oh, is that Lord Cranwood? Yes, the uh, heavy-set middle-aged man over there, just beyond that fifth sarcophagus. With which? The chap with a rather florid face, just packing those notes into his briefcase. Oh, looks good enough, I must say. Judging from his appearance, I should think the curse of a what's-his-name wouldn't have much luck with him. You'll excuse me, gentlemen. I want a word with Lord Cranwood before he leaves. Oh, Sir Holmes, supposing I run along, I'll meet you at the club for lunch and... Uh... Oh, Lord Cranwood, what's the matter? Why, well, he, he's collapsed. Quick, Watson. I, I don't understand. He just seemed to keel over. Well, let me take a look at him. You were standing right beside him, Professor. Just what happened? Well, I was speaking to him. He clutched his throat, tried to say something, and collapsed. Holmes. Yes, Watson? The man's dead. Impossible. Cause of death, Watson? Well, I should have said heart, but... But uh, the I... curious rigidity of the muscles of his hands and throat aren't consistent with that diagnosis. Is that it, Watson? Quite correct, Holmes. You would better notify Scotland Yard at once, Professor Halliday. Scotland Yard? Mr. Holmes, are you suggesting... I suggest nothing, Professor Halliday. But Lord Cranwood has died extremely suddenly. In view of the three previous deaths which have occurred among the members of the expedition... I feel that this is definitely a matter for the police. I'll send for them at once. I'm certain, Watson, that a second look at Lord Cranwood's body will suggest to your mind a cause of death with which you cannot be un unfamiliar after your army career in India. The congested eyeballs, the rigid neck muscles. You mean snake bite? Precisely. The bite of some venomous and highly poisonous snake is the only cause consistent with these appearances. But there are no snakes here in the British Museum? That, Watson, is why I sent for Scotland Yard. You've been pacing up and down after two solid days, Holmes. Would it be too much to ask you to be seated for at least five minutes? I'm sorry, Watson. The lack of any satisfactory solution to the problem of Lord Cranwood's death has driven me almost out of my mind. You find the problem insoluble, then? So far. Come in. Ah, Inspector Lestrade. I've been expecting a call from you. Uh, this thing's fair got me beat, Mr. Holmes. Oh, sit down, Inspector. Can I get you a drink? Thank you, Doctor. I'll be glad of one. <laughs> Well, we've got the coroner's verdict, Mr. Holmes, and much good it does us. Death by misadventure from unknown causes. Well, you could hardly expect a coroner's jury to say more. Did the Home Office pathologist confirm my opinion? Uh, here you are, Mr. Well, thank you, Doctor. Oh, yes, Mr. Holmes, all the appearances of death were consistent with the bite of some deadly snake. But did we find any snakes running around? Were there any snake bites on the deceased body? No. <laughs> 
while you yourself within a few yards of the man, Mr. Holmes, and you know as well as I do that if a man gets bitten by a snake, he's going to let out a yell. I know exactly how you feel, Lestrade. Yeah, and have you seen the papers? <laughs> Scotland Yard baffled by 5,000-year-old curse. Death strikes again from Egyptian tomb. You can't blame the journalist, Lestrade. It's a newspaper editor's dream. And Scotland Yard's nightmare. <laughs> well, I must be off. The commissioner wants to see me this afternoon. You can be thankful this isn't one of your cases, Mr. Holmes. I think this one would be too much even for you. Phew. Never seen a steward quite so worked up before. And I can't say that I blame him, Watson. Well, come along. Since the late Lord Cranwood's funeral is to take place at two o'clock, we might well stroll over to Hanover Square. Perhaps a brisk walk may serve to blow the cobwebs from our brains. <laughs> I've known you stand about outside a church at a funeral home, peering at the relatives of a dead man. I'm anxious to see the new Lord Granwood, as well as his relatives. He was a nephew of the late Lords, you know, and the family's interest in Egyptology has been inherited by him, along with the title. Here they come. I wouldn't want to be in his boots with a curse hanging over me head. There's Lord Cranwood, Watson. Husky-looking young chap. Looks as though it'd take more than a family curse to get him down. Who's that coming after him, the pale young fellow in the wheelchair? His cousin, a Mr. Neville Robertson, I believe. Been hopelessly paralyzed ever since boyhood. Horse rolled on him while hunting. Yes, the lines of pain and suffering are very evident in the poor fellow's face. That must be Robertson's older brother, Mr. Oliver Robertson. That rather heavy-set young man just coming out. I assume that's his wife with him, the, the girl with the black veil. Well, it's rather rough on them, all these curious people staring. Come along, Holmes. Let's be off. Very well, Watson. I've seen all that I... I beg your pardon, sir, but aren't you Mr. Sherlock Holmes? Yes. Well, my name's Oliver Robertson. Fortunate coincidence, my seeing you here. I'd intended sending you a message this evening. A message? Yes, I... I wanted you to... Well, this is hardly the place to discuss such matters. I'm staying at my cousin, Lord Cranwood's house. I wonder if you'd be good enough to come there this evening. Would nine o'clock be satisfactory? Excellent, Mr. Holmes. Good day, sir. Good day, Mr. Roberts. Oh, come in, gentlemen, come in. I don't think you know my wife. Dear, may I introduce Mr. Sherlock Holmes? How do you do? And this is my colleague, Dr. Watson. How do you do? I'm very happy to see you here, Mr. Holmes. And you too, Dr. Watson. Mr. Holmes, my wife and I, well, to put it frankly, have asked you to come here because we're afraid. Not for ourselves, but for my cousin, the new Lord Cranwood. Mr. Holmes, neither Oliver nor myself is of a nervous temperament. If you've read the accounts of the Cranwood expedition, you must appreciate my feeling that we're contending against more than mere ill fate. Four members of the same small group. Dying mysteriously or by violence within a few weeks of each other. Well, sir, you don't put any stock in all this talk about an ancient Egyptian curse? No, I don't really know. Uh, tell me, Mr. Robertson, does the new Lord Cranwood share your fears? I regret to say he does not. He laughed when I told him I'd asked you here. Am I interrupting a council of war, or may I be permitted to be present? Oh, come in by all means, Neville. Here, let me give you a hand with your wheelchair. I can manage, I can manage. My brother Neville, gentlemen, Mr. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. How do you do, How do, you do? I assume that the presence of the celebrated sleuth of Baker Street is not unconnected with the curse of the Cranwood. Please, Neville, don't make fun of us for being frightened. Oh, 
After all, it's Derek we're worrying about, not ourselves. Time enough for you to worry, Oliver, when the curse catches up with Derek. Then you'll be Lord Cranwood yourself, and it'll be my turn to start worrying. I gather, Mr. Robertson, that you are somewhat skeptical regarding the efficacy of Hashafit's 5,000-year-old curse. My granduncle died of heart failure after the excitement of discovering the tomb. Dr. Dumas' death was certainly not the first case of sunstroke that's ever been heard of in Egypt. And Wilson, who fell overboard from the ship, was notoriously fond of the bottle. Does that answer your question? Ingenious, Mr. Robertson, but it leaves out of account your uncle's death in the British Museum the other day. I could offer you a dozen theories to account for that, but I doubt if they'd be sensational enough to please you. Mr. Holmes, regardless of what my cousin may say, and I know he'll agree with my brother, I wish to engage you to prevent any repetition of the tragedies which have already struck this family. Do say you will, Mr. Holmes. I will do my best, Mr. Robertson, to keep Lord Cranwood safe from harm, but without his cooperation, I greatly fear that I... Stimson said he wanted to see me, Oliver. Oh, I beg your pardon. I didn't know you had guests. I very much want to see you, Derek. This is Mr. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. My cousin, Lord Cranwood, gentlemen. How do you do? I'm sorry, gentlemen. I have no sympathy with my brother's fears, nor do I see any necessity for dragging detectives into this matter. I trust you'll excuse me. Good night. Well... You see, Mr. Holmes, it's just as I told you. But I do hope you'll do your best anyway, Mr. Holmes. I promise you I shall. Your task won't be made any easier, Mr. Holmes, by my cousin's stubborn determination to continue working at the museum. He's arranged with Professor Halliday to work there at night in the future, uh, beginning tomorrow. He wishes to avoid the stares of the curious. Hmm, interesting. Great Scott, my watch must have stopped. 9.30 and I haven't as yet fed my snakes. Snakes? Did you say snakes? Why, yes, Doctor. Since my affliction debars me from digging in Egyptian tombs and similar active pastimes, I amuse myself with a small herpetarium. Would you care to see my collection? Good heavens, no. Or some other time, perhaps, Mr. Robertson, Dr. Watson and I must be off. Good. Snakes. say, Holmes, that I find that sinister cripple Neville and his nasty collection of poisonous reptiles highly suspicious. Well, there's no doubt that Neville's personality has been warped by his affliction. And the availability of snake venom is, of course, significant. And look at his motive, Holmes. Look at his motive. The Cranwood title and the Cranwood fortune. But there's one thing you've forgotten, Watson. Even if the new Lord Cranwood were to die, it would be Neville's older brother who would inherit Oliver and his wife would become Lord and Lady Cranwood. Are you trying to tell me that a murderer who'd killed two men would boggle at a third? If Cranwood dies and Oliver gets the title, he'd be the last barrier in Neville's way. I don't like to say it, Holmes, but for once you seem to be singly obtuse about the facts of this case. Possibly, Watson. At any rate, I intend that you and I shall be present, although concealed, when Lord Cranwood visits the Egyptian galleries tomorrow night. You mean that you anticipate an attempt upon his life? As I have told you on previous occasions, Watson, it's a great mistake to theorize ahead of one's data. Sir Holmes, you, you, don't, uh, you don't really put any faith in all this talk about the supernatural curse. Do you, Watson? I, I, oh, gosh, no, no, of course not. Good. Well, then I trust that tomorrow night you will arm yourself with your service revolver. Oh, really? Yes, Watson. I should like to be in readiness for anything we may encounter at the British Museum. Supernatural or otherwise.
place at night, isn't it? Carve humanity? Yes. What do you mean? Merely that the relics of the past are all about us. Oh, yes, yes, of course, sir. Go on this way, through the northern vestibule. I say, Holmes, what's that thing? Looks like a coffin. That's what it is. Oh, good, good. Ah, here we are. Ah, he'll no doubt work at that long table. It has the only decent light in the room. And you take that side of the table, Watson. I'll take this. And make certain there's no one and nothing concealed. You're, you're, you're not expecting to find a, a snake anywhere, are you, Holmes? I don't expect to find anything. I merely wish to make certain that there is nothing to find. Now, careful, Watson. Don't knock over that little figure. What the devil is it? And the Egyptians call those little statues the answerers. They were buried in the cedar coffins within the sarcophagi to accompany the dead and to obey their orders. Well, a pleasant idea, I must say. Well, there's nothing hidden on this side of the table. Nor here. Now, now, there's an excellent spot to conceal ourselves. Over here, Watson. Great. God, what a horrible sight. What sort of a nightmare is that? And appropriately enough, it's a statue of Hashafit, a ram-headed god. Oh, excellent, Watson. Now, this will do perfectly. We can see everything in the room from behind uh, here. Just what are you expecting, Holmes? I don't know. Quiet. Someone coming. Lord Cranford. Yes, he's taking his papers out of his briefcase. Oh, now that he's turned the lamp up, I can see a bit better. He's all right so far. He's setting down to work. What? Something's wrong. Quick! He must have fainted. Here's the antitoxin. Give him the injection. Hurry! It's too late, Holmes. He's dead. In just a moment, we'll rejoin Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson as they endeavor to solve the mystery of the ancient Egyptian curse. Men, if you want to be a success in life, remember that well-groomed hair adds a great deal to a man's appearance. And one of the first requisites of handsome, healthy-looking hair is a hygienic scalp. So start at once and take better care of the hair you've got. And if you're smart, you'll use Cremel hair tonic. No other hair tonic keeps the hair more neatly in place without looking or feeling greasy. But men, Cremel does lots more than keep hair looking handsome. Cremel's light oils have a grand lubricating effect on a dry scalp. At the same time, Cremel removes itchy, loose dandruff. Notice how alive and tingling your scalp feels. And you like to massage Cremel on your scalp because it's such a clean product. It never feels greasy or sticky. And if your hair, like so many men's, is so dry that it breaks and falls when you comb it, Cremel actually helps condition the hair in that it makes it feel softer, more pliable, and look as if it had some body to it. So men, for handsome groomed hair and a more hygienic scalp, use Cremel daily. Buy a bottle of Cremel at any drugstore. Ask for an application at your barber's. K-R-E-M-L, Cremel hair tonic. That famous modern hair tonic which has become such a nationwide favorite. And now back to Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson and our story. Well, 
I say, Holmes, if you won't have any lunch, do at least take a cup of tea. No, thank you, Watson. I'm not hungry. You've been saying that ever since that poor fellow Derrick was killed the night before last. You simply must eat, Holmes. My appetite will return when I have a solution for this case, Watson, and not before. Well, I've, I've hesitated to say it, Holmes, but uh, if that man had died by any natural means in front of our very eyes, I'm perfectly certain that you would have solved the riddle. Well, if your hypothesis is correct, Watson, this case is not a matter of the mortal's minds. And that I refuse to admit. Well, we saw him come in. We saw him open his briefcase. He turned up the lamp, sat down. Thank and... you, Watson. Thank me for what? You've just given me some remarkably interesting food for thought. Oh, really? Come in. Why, Mrs. Robertson? Oh, I, I beg your pardon. It's Lady Cranwood now, isn't it? Makes me unhappy to say that it is, Dr. Watson. Won't you sit down, Lady Cranwood? I've already expressed to your husband my deep feeling over the tragedy I failed to prevent. Let me assure you, Mr. Holmes, that neither my husband nor I feel that you were in any way to blame. I appreciate your kindness, Lady Cranwood, but I still blame myself for having failed to reach a solution. And that is why I've come to see you this morning, Mr. Holmes. I... I hardly know how to say it. My suspicion is such a horrible one. Oh, there, 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 my dear. I'm convinced that Oliver is in deadly peril. And... And from his own brother. Do you hear that, Holmes? You felt it too, Dr. Watson. Oh, I've been fighting down a horrible thought, denying it even to myself. But I felt I had to tell you, Mr. Holmes. Well, have you any proof, Lady Cranwell? Anything definite on which to base such an accusation? Only Neville's snares and his jealousy of my husband. And those horrible snakes of his. Perhaps you may be able to assist me in confirming or disproving your suspicions of Neville. Lady Cranwood. Anything I can do, Mr. Holmes. Anything. I imagine that the entire family, and the servants as well, will all be attending the funeral this afternoon. Yes, of course. Then, if you will be good enough to leave me your key to the house, I shall take advantage of everyone's absence to go there and investigate one or two possibilities that have occurred to me. Of course, Mr. Holmes. Head us the key. Thank you. And one other thing. I should appreciate it if you would ask your husband to meet Watson and myself at the museum tonight, about nine o'clock. The museum? Yes. I feel that a reenactment of the late Lord Cranwood's death may bring us to a solution. You think it's necessary, Mr. Holmes? I think it is vitally necessary. Very well. I will ask my husband to meet you at the museum at nine. I must go now. Goodbye. Goodbye, Dr. Watts. Uh, goodbye. Poor woman, no wonder she's overwrought. Come, Watson. Your hat and stick. We have work to do. Cranwood's house, you mean? Well, I shall go there this afternoon. But meanwhile, I want you to take a note to Lestrade at Scotland Yard and personally see to it that he gets it. And then? Meet me at nine o'clock tonight at the British Museum. Well, I must say, Holmes, that as long as we had to come back to this chamber of horrors, I'm glad that you insisted on a decent amount of illumination. Since we won't be concealing ourselves this evening, Watson, I asked Professor Halliday to leave the Egyptian gallery fully lighted. Now, you sit here, Watson. Well, as long as none of the professors are about, Holmes, I don't suppose the museum will be shaken to its foundations if, if I smoke the pipe. Ah. Huh, that's better. Good evening, Lord Cranwood. Good evening. Lady Cranwood? Uh, Mr. Holmes, Dr. Watson... Really? Well, I fail to see what purpose will be served by a reenactment of my cousin's tragic death, but well, I'm willing to do anything within my power that will offer any hope. I insist on in coming with Oliver, Mr. Holmes. 
I'm afraid every moment I'm away from him. And now, Lord Granwood, let us try in every way to duplicate your cousin's actions of two nights ago. I have here his briefcase, and I'd like you to enter through those doors, carrying the briefcase in your left hand and humming a tune. All right. Ready? All right, go ahead. <clears throat> now, uh, put the briefcase down on this table. Take off your hat and coat and put them on the table. Any particular place you want them? Oh, just place them on the table, as your cousin did. Now, open the briefcase. Oh, I thought I... What were you about to say? Uh, nothing. You were about to say, Lord Cranwood, that you thought the ingenious adaptation of the Borgia's poison needle had been removed from its mount in the briefcase lock. What on earth are you talking about? I found that fiendishly clever mechanism in your study this afternoon. Mr. Holmes, what do you mean? I mean that this briefcase was fitted with a poison needle, which was removed after Derek's death. Oh, no! And which I replaced when I found it at your house this afternoon. How horrible! How utterly vile! I also found some of the poison, Lord Cranwood. And I greatly fear that when I remounted the needle in the briefcase after my experiments, some of the venom may have remained on it. It was, Neville. Bluff, Holmes. Sheer bluff. You wouldn't dare. If you think I'm bluffing, Lord Cranwood, why is your face going so pale? You're clutching your arm with your other hand. Why? Fiend, it was poison. Oh, no. My arm's swelling. It's going numb. There's no feeling left in my hand. No, 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 Oliver. Mr. Holmes must be mad. Must you, Holmes? You've killed me. All right, I did it. I killed the others, but... You'll never hang me! Oh, all right, Lestrade, oh, there's your confession. It's a confession, all right, oh, Mr. Holmes, but all you've given us is the corpse of a murderer. He's dead! You've killed him! Not a bit of it. He's only collapsed from fear. Holmes, the pain in his arm, the symptoms. Merely a harmless, though painful solution which I placed on the poison needle. Oh. Catch her, Watson, she's fainting. And Oliver's a fiend, Holmes, an absolute fiend. Oh, unquestionably. But you must admit that his hiring us was an ingenious attempt at a novel method of removing all possible suspicion from himself. And now he'll pay the penalty for murdering at least two men. A good thing, too, though I'm sure I don't know how you ever found out about the briefcase. Why, you gave me the clue, Watson. You yourself. I did? Back in Baker Street when you were talking about the second death. You mentioned that we had seen Lord Cranwood enter the room. Open his briefcase. Well, we did. Exactly. But until you mentioned it, the significant fact had escaped me that the only object common to both deaths and handled by both men was the briefcase. Good gracious me. Well, that solves the mystery of the ancient Egyptian curse. Does it, Watson? Have you forgotten the three who died previously under such strange circumstances after they had opened Harshafit's temple? You, uh... You don't mean that you really believe in that stupid curse? Those three deaths have still not been explained, and I doubt that they ever will be. There are powers, Watson, higher powers, of which we poor humans still know nothing. Ladies, 
the poet who said a woman's hair was her crowning glory certainly knew what he was talking about. That's why you ladies should take the very best care of your hair, especially in shampooing. I'm glad you brought that point up, Mr. Bell, because many popular shampoos have a tendency to dry the hair. Well, here's one shampoo that will never dry the hair, never under any circumstances, and it's Cremel Shampoo. Yes, Cremel Shampoo is simply wonderful. It actually glamabays each tiny strand of hair so that it fairly radiates natural, dazzling highlights. It leaves the hair simply gleaming with natural, glossy luster. And what's more, your hair stays this way for days. Cremel shampoo is not a soapless shampoo. It's not a cream shampoo. It's entirely different. Cremel shampoo never hurts the texture of your hair. You can use it as often as you wish, over a long period of time, and it'll never dry your hair. In fact, it has a beneficial built-in oil base, which actually helps keep the hair from becoming dry or brittle. Remember, ladies, that Beautiful Powers models wash their hair with Cremel shampoo. They claim no other shampoo leaves their hair more shining bright, yet never dries the hair. Why not try it? K-R-E-M-L, Cremel shampoo. Now, Dr. Watson, what about next week? Well, next week, I think I'll tell you a story about the strange and ferocious behavior of Professor Presby's dog. And the even stranger behavior of the professor himself. I call it The Adventure of the Creeping Man. Tonight's new Sherlock Holmes adventure was suggested by an incident in Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's story, A Study in Scarlet. Nigel Bruce appeared by permission of California Pictures. Tonight, the part of Sherlock Holmes was played by Mr. Ben Wright. The Sherlock Holmes series is produced by Tom McKnight with original music composed and conducted by Alex Steinert. This is Joseph Bell speaking for Cremel Hair Tonic and Cremel Shampoo and inviting you to be with us next week at this same time when Dr. Watson will tell us about the adventure of the creeping man. ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. And that's The New Adventures of Sherlock Holmes from March 10, 1947, with a singular affair of the Egyptian curse, starring Tom Conway, along with Nigel Bruce, as heard on ABC. Hope you enjoyed that. Let's take a quick break, then it's more of the WGN Radio Theater. Don't forget, join the Classic Radio Club at ClassicRadioClub.com. If you join, you'll receive 10 of the greatest classic radio shows sent to your home each month via email or on five CDs in a collector case along with liner notes. Just go to ClassicRadioClub.com. Join the club. Be in the club. Get your classic radio shows ClassicRadioClub.com. All right, after the news, we'll tune into the Columbia Workshop starring Larry Haynes. And then it's the Bill Stern Sports Newsreel starring Bill Stern along with his special guest, Gene Autry. That's coming your way after the news. Welcome back to the WGN Radio Theater. I'm your host, Carl Amari. My co-host is Lisa Wolf and our executive producer, Mike Estella. We're here every Saturday night, 10 p.m. until 3 o'clock in the morning, playing eight of your favorite classic radio shows each and every week. And I want to tell everybody out there listening about Matt Burdine of Burdine Jewelers. If you have some fine jewelry that you don't wear anymore and you want to turn it into cash... 
you want to get to know Matt Burdeen at Burdeen's Jewelers. Burdeen's has a toll-free number to call, 800-875-4418. If you call Matt Burdeen, tell him you heard this radio ad. He will give you a free appraisal on your fine jewelry. Now, why let that fine jewelry sit in a dresser drawer or in a safety deposit box when you can turn it into cash and Matt will pay you top dollar? I've sent him all kinds of business and my friends and family have been really, really satisfied. And I know, Lisa, you sort of revitalize some of your jewelry, right? I did. And most importantly, I trust you, Carl. And if you trust Matt, then I trust Matt. That's that's how it goes. Yeah. Call Matt Burdeen, 800-875-4418. Mention this radio offer. Now, you can go to his website, too. That's burdeens.com, B-U-R-D-E-E-N-S.com. He has all kinds of wonderful jewelry for sale there. Or you can sell him your fine jewelry, or you can revitalize your jewelry. After this short break, it's the Columbia Workshop, plus Bill Stern Sports Newsreel. Stick around. Hour 5 of the WGN Radio Theater. Don't forget, we're here every Saturday night, 10 p.m. until 3 o'clock in the morning, playing all your favorite classic radio shows. The Shadow, Jack Benny, Inner Sanctum, The Whistler, Lights Out. You name it, we have it here And we also have a website, WGNRadioTheater.com. That's our official website. There's a schedule there. There's all kinds of fun stuff at our website. So go to WGNRadioTheater.com. But right now it's time for the Columbia Workshop. Now, this was a drama that came to radio way back in 1936. It ran until 1947. Now, this was an innovative series that gave authors directors, sound engineers, and composers many opportunities to experiment with the use of sound as a device for enhancing narrative. Its productions were often audacious, from Orson Welles's two-part dramatization of Hamlet to Archibald MacLeish's eloquent anti-war poem, Air Raid, to the early works of Arch Obler. The directors included William N. Robeson, John Houseman, Fletcher Markle, and Norman Corwin. The series won a 1946 Peabody Award for Outstanding Achievement in Drama. Time now for the Columbia Workshop from February 16, 1946. This is called Just a Plain Blue Suit. It stars Larry Haynes. Here is the Columbia Workshop. The Columbia Workshop is on the air, presenting radio's foremost laboratory for new writing and production techniques. Today, for the third program in the new Columbia Workshop series, Just a Plain Blue Suit, written by David Leeson. The special music was composed and conducted by Norman Lockwood. The program is produced and directed by Howard G. Barnes. token of the gratitude of the free people of the United States of America, 
It gives me extreme pleasure to present to you your country's supreme gift, the Congressional Medal of Honor. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Thank you, son. Sergeant Murphy, step forward, please. Sergeant Murphy, for your aggressive action and valorous conduct on the initial beachhead of Okinawa, for your courageous and successful attempts to rescue three wounded comrades while under severe enemy mortar and machine gun fire, although already twice wounded yourself, your superior officers have recommended you for the highest award which can be given by the American people. Sergeant Murphy, as representative of the President of the United States of America, it is now my privilege to bestow upon you the Congressional Medal of Honor. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Thank you, Sergeant. Civilian Joe Vanelli, please step forward. Civilian Joe Vanelli. In recognition of your high uh, sense just of... Just a minute, Mr. Secretary. There's uh, been a terrible mistake made somewhere. Mistake, Joe? What do you mean? I mean... Well, I, I mean me standing here with no uniform on. I'm, I'm just a plain guy, Mr. Secretary. I got no idea how my name got on your list. I got no idea how I even got mixed up in the ceremony. I, I mean, me standing here like this, well, it's taken up everybody's time. This must be pretty embarrassing for you, Mr. Secretary. I know it is for me. I think I see what you mean. Oh, Sergeant Murphy. Yes, sir? Will you put the rest of these gentlemen at ease? Yes, sir. At ease! Thank you, Sergeant. Now, Joe, you were saying... Uh, well, it, it's like this, Mr. Secretary. I'm no hero, see? I'm not even a soldier. Why, the biggest thing I ever shot at was one of them clay pigeons. And at that, they had the gun chained to the counter. And look how I'm dressed. Just a plain blue suit. And all of a sudden, I find myself mixed up with these other guys here. These heroes. Why, I couldn't even stretch a point and claim I was a hero on the home front. You want to know what I did during the war? I worked for a little outfit called the Flatland Life Insurance Company. In a foxhole, they call them the Claims Department. That's what I did before the war, and I'll probably do it the rest of my life, which isn't very heroic, huh? So I, I just wanted to tell you this so you wouldn't do anything foolish with one of the medals, because I'm no hero, Mr. Secretary. But I'm no heel either. And I bet there isn't a guy here that wanted to be a hero any more than Joe Vanelli did. I guess that sounds kind of off-key in a ceremony like this, but it's the truth just the same. I got lots of Italian blood in me, see? And it gets hot awful fast sometimes. Like it did the day they hit Pearl Harbor. Joe? Joe, you heard? Of course I heard. How could I help from hearing? Joe, you're shaking. Yeah, yeah, Ollie. I'm shaking. I'm mad, Ollie. We've been waiting for you, the kids and me. We're going to go to church, Joe. I feel like we've got to pray. Yeah, yeah, that's good. You and the kids. I'll meet you later. You better come, too. Joe, where are you going? Post office. Post office on Sunday? Recruiting office, Ollie. They're going to be open. Joe, you gonna... Yeah, of course I'm gonna. I'm mad, Ollie. Okay, Joe. The kids and me, we're gonna go pray. All right, you guys. Keep moving. Watch the man in front of you. Do everything he does. Carry your shoes in your hand. Come on, come on. Let's go there, Mac. 
Over here, boy. I want to hear your heart. How old are you? 32. Ever had any heart disease? <laughs> me? Heart disease? Are you kidding? No, mister, I'm not kidding. I don't have time for jokes today. Oh, me neither, but there's nothing wrong with my heart. Yeah, we'll, we'll be hearing a lot of that from now on. Heart. We can't use you, fellow. Can't use me? Well, listen, Doc, there's nothing wrong with me. I was never sick a day in my we life. Don't argue. We haven't time to argue. I'm not arguing. I'm telling you, I never had any trouble with my heart. You've got trouble now, fellow. Step down. Scratch him off, Sergeant. I already scratched him. And that, Mr. Secretary, is how I started off the war. I go in that joint, a potential hero, and come out 4F. How I hate that 4F. But there was no sense crying about it. There were still plenty of ways to pitch if a guy wanted to pitch, and I was a guy that wanted to pitch. You want to see me, Joe? Yes, sir. Uh, <clears throat> Mr. Evans, I've been working for you for nine years, and... Well, you're a great guy, Mr. Evans. Huh. Yes, Joe, I know. I'm a great guy, and you hate to quit, but you feel you have to. Is that it? Yeah, yeah, that's about it. How did you know? Well, Joe, after you've heard as much as I have since Pearl Harbor, you got to know what's coming. Where to? Shipyards, Joe? Yeah. I've done a lot of thinking, see? I don't blame you, Joe. I can't match those salaries. Oh, now, wait a minute, Mr. Evans. It's not salaries I'm after. If I wanted more money, I'd be talking money. Uh, I'm 4F, Mr. Evans, like you know. A lot of guys think of 4F like it was a gravy train. They look at you a minute and they say, 4F, huh? Oh, that's too bad. The old army's gonna miss you. Yeah. Well, what they're thinking goes like this. You look plenty healthy to me, bud. Bad heart, huh? It beats, don't it? What do you want in there, chimes? Maybe, maybe that's what you thought, Mr. Evans, huh? Vanelli's 4F. You don't have to worry about being drafted. Watch him throw it into me for a nice stiff raise. No, Joe. That's not what I thought. 4F, the old gravy train. Well, I don't like gravy that way. Gravy's cooked up to pass around. This is good work here. I like it, see? But I got more guts and brains than this job takes. I'm spinning my wheels here. We need ships, so I ought to be out building ships. So should I, Joe. You, Mr. Evans? Why not me? The tan fell last week. And what about next week? Don't you think I'm mad, too? Don't you think I'm going to fight, too? Sure you do, Mr. Evans. Sure, all Only right. what? You're sore because you're 4F. All right, Vanelli, I'm sore because I'm 4H. And we can both build ships. But you own a life insurance company. You can't just chuck this all away and breeze over to the shipyard. That's what you're doing, isn't it? No, this isn't my business. Tell that to the Marines, Joe. Or better yet, tell it to their wives and kids waiting for those claims to be settled. Tell them it isn't your business. Now, wait a minute, Mr. Evans. I didn't come here to get into an argument. No, you came in here to quit. You're spinning your wheels. You've got too much guts and brains for this job. Maybe so. But what about that empty desk next to you? And the one across the aisle? Have you got enough guts and brains to handle three jobs, six jobs, ten jobs? Because that's what I'm going to have to do. What do you think I've been doing, anagrams? I'm doing four guys' work right now. Sure, and you're going to quit, too. Shipyards, good pay, exciting, setting new records. Bust a champagne bottle every five minutes. Gravy train? Huh. Why, you'll be riding in the dining car. You don't have to talk like that, Evans. Go ahead, guts and brains, set your record. Bust your champagne bottles. But just remember this. When they give you your gas coupons and tire certificates, when they pat you on the back... When they kick you upstairs with a Christmas bonus, remember this, Vanelli, that there's an old dope by the name of Evans trying to run a life insurance company who has more guts and brains than you'll ever have, and he'll be using them the hard way. 
I'll have you checked in the morning. Was there anything else? Yeah, Evans. I don't know where you got your lousy opinion of me, but you're going to eat it, gravy and all. Because I'm not going to quit, Evans. After what you just said, you couldn't fire me. big mouth, Mr. Secretary. I sit there and talk myself out on the last chance I got of being a hero. How do you like that? It seems like every time I start into pitch, I wind up with a catch's mitt on each hand. Now, take Ollie, for instance. Well, I even crumbed up her big chance to be a hero because I couldn't keep my snoot out of somebody else's business. Joe? Come home, Ollie. Hi. Hi. What's new with Mrs. V and all the little things? Well, let's see. Your son's been shooting Japs all afternoon in the living room. <laughs> Susie's been trying to get her teeth on the puppy's foot. Outside of that, nothing new. Susie's okay now, huh? Mm-hmm. Doctor said not even bring her down anymore. Swell. I, uh... I got the hospital bill today. Bad, Joe? It wiped out those four dollars war bonds. I cashed them in at lunch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you should have seen the look on that guy's face when I pushed them bonds out. For a minute, I thought I was Tojo. Joe made me feel like a heel. We'd have been worse heels not to pay the hospital, Joe. Sure, sure, Ollie. And that's his duty, to make you feel like a heel. But that extra dirty look he threw at me was over and above the call of duty. <laughs> Thank goodness you have a sense of humor. You gotta have, when nothing's funny. Mm. You hungry? Mm-mm, not much. I got a bellyache. You've been eating Kelly's beef stew again. <laughs> no. My bellyache's in my pocketbook. Joe, quit worrying. We'll get by. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How about me drowning my troubles in a salami sandwich? Try and find any. How about some poor man's salami? Oh, peanut butter again? Mm-hmm. Oh, now what? I'll go. All right. Hi, brother-in-law. Hey, Ollie. Speaking of the poor man's salami, look at this bundle of red points. Hello, sis. I haven't Hi. seen you for a week. Where'd you get the get-up? Mm, overtime bought me this. I could... It's sure pretty, Janie. <laughs> I only got a minute, Ollie. The foreman of my department is waiting for me downstairs. Oh, cut it out, Joe. I got a ten-cent raise. Oh, Ollie, I told you I'd let you know. Consolidated's starting to hire again tomorrow. They need 16,000 more. Consolidated? Oh. what goes on here? You trying to break up my happy home? Oh, they'll start her at 80 cents. And on a 60-hour week, that'll buy a lot of clothes, Ollie. Yeah, yeah, sure. But what about the kids? Just put them on ice until the war's over? <laughs> Don't be silly, Joe. I'm working. Yeah, you're working. Day and night. <laughs> Not every night. And I don't keep my Billy on ice. Yeah, Janie, what does Billy do all day? Did you ever care to find out? Why, he eats his meals with his grandma and he plays all day in the park. <laughs> what could be sweeter? Sweeter for who, Janie? You or Billy? Well, well you have to get nasty about it, Joe. Janie's here doing me a favor. What did you mean by that crack, Joe? Just this. I used to cut across that park every night on my way home. I don't ever see no Billy. You know where I used to find him? Go ahead. You're telling us. Joe, are you sure this is any of your business? That's up to Jane. I used to see him across the street, loafing and sniping butts with those two baby gangsters in front of that dime movie house that belongs to old man Schultz. Now, ain't that terrible? He just happens to be nuts about those Disney cartoons. Could be. Could be. But that was no pair of Mickey mice he was hanging out oh, with. Oh, Joe, don't be such an old woman. 
Billy's 14. He can take care of himself. Yeah, it looks like he's going to have to. Hey, what are you, the neighborhood MP? Okay, so it's none of my business. But I don't want any of my kids graduating from reform school, and Ollie don't need any new clothes that day. And the war effort can go jump in the lake, huh, Joe? Oh, wouldn't you know anything about the war effort? War effort? To me, it's like charity, lady. It strictly begins at home. You don't fight a war hanging around the streets or hitting a beer parlors. And wouldn't your old man be proud of the war effort was he to come home and find you and your foreman out on a town and Billy and Somali learning to shoot craps? Get him. Parson Joe. You better break him of that preaching habit, Ollie, before somebody slaps that pretty 4F head loose from those manly shoulders. Me, I don't like the odor in here. Good night, Ollie. And oh, yeah. Good night, Reverend Vanelli. Night, war worker. Joe. All right, so I lost my temper, so I wasn't very nice, so I embarrassed you, so I'm sorry. You know that. Where's that peanut butter sandwich? Joe. I said I was sorry. What happened? What are you talking about? About Billy. What happened to Billy, Joe? Billy? Nothing. Nothing that I know of. Tell me. She's my sister. Tell me. Oh, it was just a kid scrape. It's all blown over. Now forget it. We'll forget nothing. What happened? Okay. You're the boss, Ollie. Billy and then Mickey, my stick-up old man, Schultz, the other night. Joe. They used knives in an alley. Knives? Boy Scout knives, Ollie. Nice, clean boy. Yeah, the kid's learning fast. Why didn't you tell this to Jane? I did better. I told the cop, the scoutmaster, and the priest. They know more about that kid than she'll ever know. And they worked him over, Ollie, plenty. He returned what he stole and... Old man Schultz promised not to prefer any charges. Mm-hmm. The Mickey Mice blue town. So, so you see, Ollie, everything's okay now. Yeah, I see, Joe. I see something else, too. Somebody paid back old man Schultz in full. What did it cost you, Joe? Well, let's forget it, Ollie. Come on. What did it cost you? 230 bucks. You crazy? We haven't got that much. I borrowed it from the bank, Ollie. I was trying to save them bonds, and then Susie goes to the hospital, so... Well, the bonds went away. Now you know why that cashier gave me that extra luck, huh? Well, the Reverend Vanelli's going to bed. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. Praise the... I figured I owed Jenny that much just for being your sister, Ollie. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. Ammunition, Hey, Ollie, where's that peanut butter sandwich? passed up that war job, Mr. Secretary, which left her and me just about the most civilian civilian in the whole country, I guess. But we got nice kids, Mr. Secretary, real nice kids. Well, finally, last year I got my big chance. Yeah, I finally got to do something. I helped a guy, Mr. Secretary. Out of 11 million men fighting this war, I finally got me a chance to help one guy. And the way I helped him, well, Mr. Secretary... For just a plain guy, I come across some mighty screwy eh? Hey, Joe. Mm. 
Here's a claim I don't know quite what to do with. Okay, Gert, tell your Uncle Joe what's the matter with this. Oh, this here's kind of pitiful, Joe. This guy don't pay his premium on time, see? So, so what? I don't either, and I work for this joint. Old man Evans still gives him 30-day grace period. Yeah, but this guy takes 31 days. He mails his check one day too late. Okay, so it suspends his policy still, so what? He paid the premium, didn't he? Yeah. But let me then tell you... Then all the guy has to do is sign one of them insurability forms, showing that he's still insurable, tuck it in an envelope, and send it back. Then the Flatland Life Insurance Company and or old man Evans pats him on the head, puts his policy back into effect. You get a hundred of them a day. Joe, what I'm trying to tell you is... This guy here ain't gonna sign no slip. How do you know whether he's gonna sign it or not? Because the guy's dead, Joe. Oh. That makes it different. Well, that guy's out of luck. It seems the mail service between here and Iwo Jima is kind of slow. Iwo Jima. Gee, that's rough. Plenty rough. Yeah. I got the guy's check, but I can't send it in without a form, and, and the poor guy can't sign a form. Married and kids, I guess. Huh? Yeah, sure. Wouldn't it be that way, though? Uh, here's a letter. Flatland Life Insurance Company, dear sirs. I do not understand why there is some trouble about this policy. My husband fought hard and tried to do a good job. He would want for me and his kids to have that $2,000 which we need bad. Sincerely, Mrs. Peter Wojnarowski. What? Gee, the poor kid. Wojnarowski. Good. Let me see that. Huh? Well, what's the matter? Pete. Wojnarowski. Maybe you knew him? Yeah. Yeah, I knew him. Him and me went through high school together. Yeah? Oh, gee, that's pitiful. Oh, this makes me sick. Him and me used to win the handball doubles every year like clockwork. You know his wife, too? Sure. And his kids. Two of them. Round and warm. And, and they smelled nice. Like fresh bread. Oh, Joe, that's terrible. All he had to do was sign one of them little slips, huh? He was a plenty good handball player. Him and me used to win them doubles. Yeah. Look at his signature on that check. Looks like a chicken walked across it, huh? Yeah. Shaky, kind of. I imagine my hand would shake just like old Pete's if I was on Iwo Jima. Yeah. Ah, oh, that's pitiful. Well, Joe, maybe you better handle this, huh? It's 5.15 now and those lousy... Yeah, bucks... yeah, let me handle it, Kate. Oh, uh, ask Pop to send me up a salami on rye on your way out, huh? Uh, salami he hasn't got. Peanut butter only. Well, then skip it. Don't sit there and brood about that half the night, Joe. It's just one of them things. Hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Just one of them things. <sighs> oh, Pete Wojnarowski. Lousy signature. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. Praise the Lord and pass. Pete, I've got an awful funny feeling that the claims department of the Flatland Life Insurance Company has reached the point where it's going to stretch a point. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. Praise the Lord, pass the ammunition. 
Pete, you got the world's lousiest signature. I signed your name now 450 times, and still I can't write it as lousy as you did. But it ain't bad. Yep. I think I'm ready now, Pete. Private first class, Peter Wojnarowski, deceased. Stand up. Raise your right hand. Oh. Okay, then use your left, Pete. Okay. Now, this is a $2,000 question, and it's sort of technical. Now, do you, Peter Wojnarowski... Hereby empower me, Joe Vanelli, with the power of attorney to forge your signature to any and all documents. All right, Pete. Now, here we go. Help me, Pete. Help me all you can. Concentrate, Pete. Concentrate. P E T E R W O. J-I-N-O-S. The rats. I can't do it, Pete. It's no good. I just can't do it. I'm only kidding myself. A, a guy can't be a right guy in the wrong way, and that's just what I'm trying to do. And me breaking the law to help you is wrong. <laughs> Seems like every blasted thing I try to do in this war is wrong. Ever since Pearl Harbor, everything I try to do is wrong. It just seems that... Joe Vanelli! Huh? Well, what you doing here this time of night? Oh, hello, Rosie. Nothing. I'm not doing nothing. Good grief, if you ain't made a mess here. How can I mop up with all them slips of paper scattered all over the floor? Oh, you can mop them up, Rosie. They're no good. Oh, dear. Uh, I was just practicing, sort of. But they're no good now. Yeah? Sure, Joe? Yeah, I'm sure. Took me a long time to get it into my thick head, but I'm sure. Okay. Uh, Joe, will me turning this radio on bother you? I always catch them news roundups in here while I'm off. Hey, you sure you're okay, Joe? Yeah, I'm okay. You see, Rosie, no matter how much you want to help a guy and his wife and his kids, you can't help him by tearing down the same things he's fighting for. Now, and whether you like it or whether you don't, Rosie, the law is the law because the law is your security, Rosie. And what guys like Pete are fighting for, security. Yeah, yeah. Joe, I, I don't know what you're talking about, but you don't look good. You look like you've seen a ghost. I did see a ghost, Rosie. But he's gone now. And I, I'm going home. Hmm. Well, better turn up that radio if I'm ever going to get the news tonight. And now for the first lap on our early morning news roundup. Out across the Pacific to Sydney, Australia. All of you in America, cheery Tuesday morning. Goes down under, it's a warm, sunny Wednesday afternoon. There's nothing like an international dateline to mix things up, is there? Dateline? And Rosie, turn off that radio. Sure, of the day. sure, sure Joe. The high command. Well, what's the matter now, Joe? Now stand there, Rosie. Don't move and think. Think real hard. Did that guy just say it was Wednesday in Australia when it was Tuesday in America? Sure, Joe, that's right. You sure that's what he said? Sure, I'm sure. Then... It's Wednesday in Iwo Jima, too, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. But it's only Tuesday here, huh? That's right, Joe. Then when it was January 9th in Iwo Jima, it was only January 8th here. Sure, Joe. Rosie, give you, Joe, a great big hug and a kiss because that insurance policy is as good as gold. Well, 
You must be crazy. What are you talking about? The dateline, Rosie, the dateline, the difference in dates. Although the difference between the dates was 31 days, the actual elapsed time was 30 days. So Pete did mail his check in time. Pete, you're in. Your policy is okay. <laughs> Rosie, come on, sweetheart. You and I are going to have a drink. We're going to celebrate. Oh, sure. Okay, Joe. But listen, what are we celebrating? We're going to toss one off for a client of mine. Private first class Peter Wojcicki. Please step forward. Uh, yes, sir, Mr. Secretary. Civilian Giovanelli, because you are a civilian, and because you have a wife like Ollie and a boss like old man Evans, because you kept your temper and didn't cry the blues and you helped with the dinner dishes, because you and Pete Wojcicki proved that being a right guy sometimes pays off, and because together... You won a war. Because of all those things, Joe, as representative of the President of the United States, I take the extremely democratic pleasure of conferring upon your plain blue suit the Congressional Medal of Honor. Joe. Hey. Hey, Joe. Joe, can't you hear me? Hey, wake up. What's the matter with you? Joe! Hmm? Joe, come on, get what? up. Get up, Joe. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What's the matter? Are you out of your head? What? What's the matter, Holly? Well, you're never going to catch that bus just sitting there staring at that newspaper with, with your mouth hanging open and your eyes bugged out like you was a trout. Oh. Yeah. Gosh, I must have been daydreaming. Well, you picked a rotten day for it. It's Monday and it's raining. That's the darndest thing ever happened to me. I was reading about the secretary handing out all the medals to them 20 guys, and the next thing I know, you were shouting at me. I had to shout, Joe. You look just like a trout. Gee. <laughs> Holly, did you read about some of the hmm? things them guys did? Talk about your heroes. Yes, I read it. That must have been a plenty beautiful ceremony, huh? Mm. Imagine how those boys must feel. Yeah, and their wives and their kids. Yeah. Oh, Joe, did you notice that squib at the bottom of the first page? No, what squib? The one where they claim they're going to take the points off peanut butter. Peanut butter, fooey. What do we care? Now we can get salami. Just a Plain Blue Suit by David Leeson has been the third in the new series of Columbia Workshop Productions. Norman Lockwood composed and conducted the special musical score. The players included Larry Haynes, Charlotte Holland, Peggy Stanley, Reed Brown Jr., Jimmy McCallion, Nora Marlowe, Julian Noah, Don Douglas, Mary Michael, and Lyle Sudrow. Howard G. Barnes produced and directed today's script for the Columbia Workshop.
Next week, the Columbia Workshop will offer Hard Luck Story by Henry Denker and Ralph Berkey and will be directed by Albert Ward. The announcer is Sandy Becker for CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. And that's the Columbia Workshop from February 16, 1946, with just a plain blue suit, a well-written portrait of the home front soldier. Hope you enjoyed that. All right, time now for Bill Stern and his sports newsreel. T-O-L-G-A-T-E, Colgate presents Bill Stern. With a Colgate Shave Cream Sports Newsreel. Bill Stern, the Colgate Shave Cream Man is on the air. Bill Stern, the Colgate Shave Cream Man with stories rare. Take his advice and you'll look keen. You'll get a shave that's smooth and clean. You'll be a Colgate brushless fan. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Bill Stern bringing you the Colgate Sports Newsreel. Our guest tonight is the best-known cowboy star in America, Mr. Gene Autry. But first, let's begin with real one. Ken Strong is the most famous player on the New York Giants championship football team. And Ken Strong recently wrote me that he uses Colgate Brushless Shave Cream, the shave cream of champions, for he wrote, Dear Bill, I get used to a rough time on the football field, but I object to it on my face. That's why I like to shave with a light, fluffy cream like Colgate Brushless Shave Cream. It softens my tough whiskers pronto, lets me shave close without any complaint from my tender skin. Thanks, Bill, for putting me wise to this grand brushless shave cream. It's Colgate Brushless for me for life. Signed, Ken Strong. See, Ken Strong knows how to make a shave behave, and you can too with Colgate Brushless, the shave cream of champions. Real two. Portrait of our anniversary. Eight years ago tonight, we began what we thought was a new type of sports show. For it was eight years ago tonight that we first began this program. And tonight, to celebrate our eighth anniversary, I think it would be appropriate to remember once again the year's outstanding memories. Memories of these past eight years. Memories, memories. Let's begin our anniversary program by going back to our first year. Back to 1939. Back to when we told a story. A story called... The Profile of an Athlete. Back in 1939, on 42nd Street in New York City in front of a freak show, a barker was shouting... Here you are, ladies and gentlemen. See the old amazing freak show, Curiosities and Monstrosities of the World. And for a special added attraction, see Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, all for one thin dime, one-tenth of a dollar. Do you remember who they called Alexander the Great back in 1939? Once, once he'd been the greatest pitcher in baseball. But in 1939, he was working in a freak show. His name? His name was Grover Cleveland Alexander. Amen. That was our top story of the first year of this program back in 39. The next year was 1940, and our best story in 1940 was called The Portrait of a Bathing Beauty. 
This was the story of a bathing beauty contest, a bathing beauty contest held in Toronto, Canada. One of the beauties in that contest was a youngster named Cleo Watson. Nobody thought that Cleo Watson had much of a chance, for only the loveliest girls in all of Canada were allowed to enter this contest. And yet Cleo Watson was so beautiful that the judges selected Miss Watson over 100 of the most beautiful girls in Canada. And Cleo Watson might have won that Toronto bathing beauty contest had not somebody discovered that Cleo Watson was a man. A man masquerading as a girl. You see, Cleo Watson's real name was Cliff Watson. He later became one of Toronto's most famous hockey stars. But he isn't remembered because he was a great hockey star. Oh, no. No, Cliff Watson is far better remembered as the man who was almost voted the most beautiful girl in Toronto. Ah, memories of our top story of 1940. The next year was 1941, and to continue our anniversary celebration, our best story in 1941 was a story called The Profile of a Bank Robber. This was the story of an innocent man who years before had helped other men to rob a bank. Being innocent, he didn't know he was helping others to rob a bank. All he knew was that he had been hired to drive a car, which he did, not knowing that the men he was driving were bank robbers. They were arrested while he... Inside of one year, he had become the heavyweight champion of the world, for his name was James J. Braddock. Do you remember that story? That was our best in 1941. The next year was 1942, and it was then that we told a strange story, a story called The Profile of a Secret Message was during the war, when one night on this program, the United States Secret Service used one of my stories to broadcast a message in code to the Nazis. Let me explain how the United States government did this. One week on my program, I had as my guest the former heavyweight champion Max Baer, who, although I didn't know it, was controlled by the United States Secret Service. Because he was controlled by the United States Secret Service, Max Baer planted in my program a code message to see if the Nazis were listening. To show you how it was done, I'm now going to recreate the interview of 1943 on this program with Max Baer. Listen and see if you can spot the code message. The interview began like this. Good evening, Max. Have you ever fought in Europe? Uh, yes, Bill. Once before King George and Queen Elizabeth. I see. And what are your hobbies now, Max? Model airplanes. I've got hundreds of them at sales. From all over, even some new ones from Halifax. Well, that's interesting. Now, uh, tell me about your last fight. That was part of the interview. But did you notice some of the words in Max Baer's speeches? Queen, Elizabeth, sales, tonight, hundreds, airplanes, Halifax. Seems obvious now, doesn't it? But we remember that those words were buried in long sentences. The Nazis got that message, but the Queen Elizabeth did not sail. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the story of how back in 1942, the United States Secret Service through Max Baer used this very program to send a message to the Nazis. Ah, memories. Tonight on the eighth anniversary of this program, we're traveling back down memory lane. Remembering the best stories of each of the past eight years. The next year would be 1944. And it was in 1944 that we told a story called... The Portrait of an Eye. 
This was the story of a hockey player named Leo Reese. Leo Reese was a great hockey player. He played up in the big leagues. But there was one thing about Leo Reese that made him unusual. He was reported to wear a glass eye. A glass eye that each night before he went to bed, he was rumored to lock up in a safe. One night, some hockey players decided to steal Leo Reese's glass eye. For they thought that without his glass eye, he couldn't play hockey. That's why late that night... They broke open his safe, stole that glass eye, unaware that attached to the piece of glass was a note. A note that read, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. This eye is false, and that's the truth. Fools, my eye is my own with which I see. Whoever steals that will have to steal me. Then and only then did the true story come out. Leo Reese, the hockey player, had never worn a glass eye at all. Ah, that was our best story of 1944. We came next to the year 1945, and the big story of 1945 was the boys coming home from the war. Ah, they were coming from Japan, from Germany, from Italy, from all over. Everywhere crowds were cheering them home. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. What about the boys who didn't come home? Tommy Hitchcock, America's polo champion. Joe Hunt, America's tennis champion. Charlie Paddock, our former track champion. Yeah, and somebody else. Ah, oh, he wasn't a champion in any sport. And yet he was the greatest champion that sports have ever had. For he was a man of whom the people say, Sleep well, soldier, you'll never be forgotten. His name was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Ah, we're almost to the end of the trail now, for the next year was 1946, last year, and our best story of last year was called The Profile of a Man and a Dog. This was the story of a man and a hunting dog. Out in Fort Wayne, Indiana, they've erected a statue in their memory because, you see, strange as it seems, that man once saved that dog's life only to have that dog later save the man's life. The dog's name is unimportant. But the man's name was Abraham Lincoln. Ah, memories. Memories are the best stories we've told each year. Now we're up to this year. The best story of this year is the story of a man who once held an American long-distance swimming record. His name was Fred Fisher. But Fred Fisher's not remembered as the man who set an American swimming record. Oh, no. No, Fred Fisher is far better remembered as the man who wrote this year's most popular song, a song called Peg O' My Heart. Peg O' My Heart, I love you. Don't let us part, I love you. And that's it, ladies and gentlemen. That brings us completely up to date. Tonight, on the eighth anniversary of this program, we've gone back through the years and retold our best story from each of the past eight years. Now, now we begin our ninth year. We begin our ninth year in the hope that you will continue to allow us to come into your homes each Friday evening to keep alive the memories of the great stars. And that on each Friday night, we'll always make our home in your heart for many, many years to come. Thanks so much for the past. Good night. God bless you. And good luck. <laughs> <laughs>
Arthur Gary. So you think a shave cream ought to be heavy and maybe greasy? Get Colgate Brushless, the shave cream of champions tonight. It's light and it's right. And now, back to Bill Stern. Bill for Colgate's camera close-up of Gene Autry. Our guest tonight is the most famous cowboy star in America, Gene Autry. He's appearing in New York City with his own famous rodeo. So we switch you now backstage to Madison Square Garden in New York, where the next voice you hear will be the famous cowboy star, Gene Autry. Howdy, folks. From backstage at Madison Square Garden, where the rodeo's now going full blast, I'd like to pay my tribute to Bill Stern on this eighth anniversary of his this program. For on this show each Friday night, I've heard the greatest stars in the business. Orson Welles, Rita Hayworth, Pat O'Brien, Betty Grable, Walter Winchell, Linda Darnell, and many others. And I think I speak for them when I say, keep it up for another eight years, Bill. Because this program has continually served in an inspiring to our wounded war veterans. For many of the stories Bill Stern tells are stories of men overcoming great handicaps. And that's what some of our wounded veterans must do. But you know, Bill, it's kind of strange that I should be on your anniversary program. For it just so happens that we in the rodeo business are celebrating an anniversary too. You see, the first rodeo took place exactly 100 years ago this year in Santa Fe, New Mexico. But rodeos have always been close to my heart for it was a cowboy who gave me my start, a guy I hope will never be forgotten. His name was Will Rogers. Now this is Gene Autry in Madison Square Garden returning you to Bill Stern. Thanks so much. Good luck and good night, Gene Autry. And that's the 3 mark for tonight. Next week, our guest will be the famous singing star, Hildegard. So be sure and be with us at our usual time each Friday night. Until next Friday night, I'll be seeing you on the screen in the News of the Day newsreel at your favorite Lowe's or Associated Theaters. Now, until next Friday night at this very same time with Hildegard, this is Bill Stern wishing you all a good, good night. The Bill Stern Show tonight came from New York City. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. And that's the Bill Stern Sports Newsreel from October 10th, 1947. Bill Stern starring their special guest, Gene Autry. Hope you enjoyed that. Let's take a quick break. Then it's more here on the WGN Radio Theater. Next week, we have eight more classic radio shows for you. We have Mr. and Mrs. North, the Jack Benny program, Big Town, Suspense, The Great Gildersleeve, Frontier Gentlemen, The Chase, and Fibber McGee and Molly. In fact, on Fibber McGee and Molly, we'll play five quarter-hour episodes on five consecutive uh, weeks here on the WGN Radio Theater. So don't miss that. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next Saturday at 10 p.m. till 3 o'clock in the morning. Stay safe. We'll see you then.